We're debating when middle age starts on This Week in the CLE. Is it 40 or after? I'm arguing it's 40, but I'm not going to say which of us is crossing that (laughs) threshold. It is This Week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with my colleagues, Laura Johnston, Lisa Garvin, and our chief political writer, Seth Richardson, who will be talking a bit about the mayor's race in Cleveland, which is careening very quickly to a close. We got a month to go. Let's begin. How quickly did the Ohio Supreme Court deal with the refusal of Ohio House Speaker Bob Cup and Senate President Matt Huffman to turn over documents in the gerrymandering case before the court? Lisa Garvin, we were astounded yesterday that these guys would be so obstructionist. I mean, every step of the way, they haven't done what they're supposed to do. And the Supreme Court really didn't waste much time in restoring order. None at all. I mean, they denied yesterday there was a request to have a third party special master to kind of oversee this the lawsuit process completely denied. And Bob Cup and Matt Huffman must respond to the plaintiff's request by nine o'clock today. So, you know, it's happening as we speak. Um, And then again, Justice Maureen O'Connor, Chief Justice Maureen O'Connor, again stated there will be no extensions. But I'm curious, though, the order doesn't really say if discovery is required at this point, because both Huffman and Cuppa said they're not going to cough it up until the Supreme Court demands that they do. I, I I think O'Connor made it pretty clear. I mean, one, she gave them less than 24 hours to respond. And what they have to respond to is the request for expedited discovery. Expedited. Mm-hmm. The plaintiffs came in and said, hey, we need a faster discovery process. Cup and Huffman said, well, the, you know, the original court order didn't say that we have to do discovery, so we ain't doing it, which is preposterous. Anybody that understands civil procedure knows you're doing discovery. So when the plaintiffs went in and said, come on. She the, O'Connor came right back, said, OK, Cup and Huffman, 9 a.m. tomorrow. Give me your response. And then my bet is she'll <laughs> issue an order at 930 telling them what the discovery process will be or or sometime shortly thereafter. I, I, I still don't understand their strategy here. I mean, they really are doing things that are going to tick off the judges. Judges don't like to be played games with. They want good faith effort. And throughout this redistricting process, Cup and Huffman have not acted in good faith. They violated the constitutional deadlines. They violated the constitutional mandates. They have said inflammatory things about getting the case dismissed, that there's no standing. And and to come out and say, we're not going to do discovery was mind boggling. Well, and Um, I keep waiting for. Go Go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I'm glad that Justice O'Connor is holding their feet to the fire. And I wonder, because she's got a little bit of wiggle room to kind of shorten the discovery process. You know, there was complaints at the beginning that the, the whole discovery process was too long because we're running up against a February second deadline for filing for the primaries next year. So, you know, yeah, I, I, I hope she keeps, keeps strong. And I'm glad that she's been well, holding her feet to the fire. Look, she's the consummate professional, so so she she does what she needs to do by the book for a jurist. But at some point, you got to think if they keep up the shenanigans, she's going to write something that makes very clear that they've reached her annoyance level. Yep. You, you shouldn't do this to judges because they have all the power, and uh, you know she could she could make life difficult. We'll yeah, see I, what they say. If I could, if I could jump in here for a second, I, 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 you know, we talk about strategy, and I kind of wonder if it's not even really a court strategy because it's just so flagrant. It's you know, 
they're very clearly just staring everybody in the eye while they do this and just basically saying, no, we don't really care about this process. We're going to do what we want. So to me, it, it almost seems like it's not even really a court strategy. Like they kind of maybe realize where it's heading. It's more of a kind of fundraising electoral strategy of sorts where they can go back to the base and basically say we violated the constitution for you (laughs) well well, well, not quite that but you know essentially yeah you know we fought everybody and you know we're the we're the true republicans we even fought with you know the republicans on the court who uh you know wanted uh, the the rhinos so to speak or whatever and i wonder if there's i i think there actually is an element of that in there Maybe. I, I mean, I, I think flagrantly violating the rules of the court and the Constitution has drawbacks, but you're probably right. I mean, th- this is so obvious and in your face to the entire system. Uh, the, these two guys are really two of the worst elected leaders I've ever seen in my life. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Is there any way to forcibly remove Ohio Supreme Court Justice Pat DeWine from the gerrymandering case? Now that he has announced he sees no conflict of interest, even though his dad, Governor Mike DeWine, plays a key role in the case. Laura Johnston, the answer to this makes me sad. Yeah, it's not looking good. There's no real way to do it because in Ohio, lawyers or parties in a court case can seek to enforce the recusal of a county judge over what they see of a conflict of interest, but that does not apply to the members of the Supreme Court. Pretty much all they can do is file a written request for a judge a justice to recuse themselves. A justice must respond in writing either a week before the oral arguments or as soon as practicable, but the justices still have discretion other to decide whether or not they see a conflict. Well, no other judge in Ohio has that discretion. Right. I mean, any other judge that would is would do what Pat DeWine is doing would be forcibly removed by the Supreme Court, probably. I mean, you can't do what he's doing. What's sad is, is that we have this caveat in the law that says nothing can be done until he breaks the rules. I mean, he's clearly breaking the rules. This will come before a disciplinary review, and I can't imagine... I mean, he could get disbarred for this. You can't do what he's doing. This is his dad, a key person in the case. You're not allowed to sit on that case. Even Jennifer Bruner, a Democratic fellow justice, came out and said, what's he doing? There's nobody in his corner on this. There's nobody that's come out and said, oh, no, I, I, I agree with his logic. He is completely alone. And look, maybe he'll get disbarred. I mean, he's running for reelection next year. That's when this case would come up. I mean, if he rules on this case... I can't imagine there won't be an immediate filing uh, for discipline. Yeah, the, the ethical rules do require judges to recuse themselves, quote, whenever a judge's impartiality might reasonably be questioned. I mean, <laughs> that's like the definition for this, because it's not even saying that they have to have like a dog in the fight, just that they could reasonably be questioned. And, you know, DeWine has recused himself in the past. So I don't understand why he's so loath to do this now but well again i think this is people drunk on power that that there have been no consequences the redistricting commission willfully and openly violated the constitution repeatedly what's the consequence i mean but dewine knows that this could come back to haunt him that he actually had to go there was a three-judge panel in 2018 when there was a complaint against him because he didn't recuse himself while 
on the Supreme Court from a case involving his dad when he was at the attorney general's office. And the three-judge panel did find that it had good cause and was worth investigating, even though he wasn't ended, he didn't end up being disqualified. But still, you've been through that. Do you really want to go through that again? This this is a much more clear-cut case, too. That was fuzzy. The rules are absolutely clear. You have to recuse yourself if it involves a close family member. This does. There's well, no, I mean, we know that Mike DeWine is going to be a witness because when they adopted the gerrymandered maps, he said they have constitutional issues. Seth Richardson. Well, and going back to what I said about Cup and Huffman, I think it's also kind of clear that the, you know, the election coming up next year is playing a part in this, right? Because we know that, uh, you know, the DeWine name isn't exactly the most popular in Republican circles now, right? Um, just because of, you know, COVID stuff and whatnot. And but he's not going to have a Republican challenger, Seth. He's running alone. He's not going to so have, not gonna he's not going to have a Republican challenger, but he is going to be on a ballot and Republicans are going to vote on that ballot. And it's a nonpartisan <laughs> ballot. Do judge. they see a, You're not do they see to be a, siding with your party? Like, oh, sure. Of course not. You're not supposed to, but there are, you know, realities to it. Like, yeah, they're nonpartisan races, but let's not pretend like they're not you know kind of quasi-partisan at I, least in a very little way do you want to i mean do you do i don't think it's to really help his dad i think it's more he's he's probably thinking more about his chances does he want to be the judge who was kind of a a deciding factor in whether or not these you know these maps passed and does that anger republicans does that put him on the bad side of republicans who you know want to see you know uh, the gop retain power i think that's probably playing a factor I, in this i think i think he this creates a huge vulnerability for him on the general ballot the, the, the it would be so easy for somebody running against him to show that he got into disciplinary trouble because he voted on a case with his dad. And I don't think that would violate judicial canons. There's certain things you can't do when you're running for judge. I don't think that's one of them. You could point out that this guy did not recuse himself from a case involving his father, got punished for it. And I think that would matter to voters because everybody knows this is wrong. That's the thing. I mean, Bruner said she was at a party over the weekend and people came up to her to talk about it. This has broken through the noise and people are sitting back in stunned amazement saying he's what? And he, yet he sits there. I mean, he just we haven't heard from him since he said he wouldn't do it, but he's out of his mind. He will go down on this. This will not end well for Pat DeWine. And I don't know that he's the deciding vote. The deciding vote is Maureen O'Connor. Can I? I mean, if, if it's a Republican Democrat thing, Maureen O'Connor is the only one of the Republicans that has shown a willingness to hold people's feet to the fire on redistricting. Uh, sure, Laura Johnson. Sure. I was just going to say, if this does cause a big enough stink, the Supreme Court can do something. The U.S. Supreme Court, they've intervened to remove a state Supreme Court justice from a case in the past. In 2009, they did it in West Virginia. So, I mean, that's not out of the question. You, yeah, but you have to have a you've got to be able to say it's violating some federal issue, which you could say it's violating voting. Rights. I mean, I mean come I mean, on. Redistricting is, well, I guess yeah. this is the legislative, this is the state legislative, not the federal. But yeah, voting rights. Uh, yeah, you could figure it. You might be able to figure out a path. I, it, I, I can't imagine that he's going to continue down this road. I mean, everybody really, is you, telling you him. You can't imagine well, I mean, it, he's flying in the face of unanimous public opinion that he's making a mistake and he will face consequences later. There's no way any legal mind is going to look at this later and say, yeah, that's OK, Pat. No conflict there. You're listening to this week in the CLE.
Why is Northeast Ohio congressional candidate Max Miller suing Stephanie Grisham, author of the new tell-all book about Donald Trump, in Cuyahoga County Common Pleas Court? Seth, Stephanie Grisham, was the press secretary at the White House. This is a very interesting national story in Cuyahoga County. Yeah, I think tell all is kind of the uh, the operative word there because she has, you know, claimed that Miller, her former boyfriend, when they worked in the White House, was physically abusive toward her and that she notified the Trumps, notified people and nobody seemed to care. And in the op ed that she wrote in The Washington Post, she said that she was uh, she was really dismayed when. Uh, you know, the, uh, the, you know, Trump endorsed Max Miller even after she had, you know, told her about, you know, what she described as abuse. And, um, you know, because of that, and, you know, Max Miller running for office, right, he's filed a defamation lawsuit in Cuyahoga County against her, um, basically saying, no, none of this happened. Uh, this, you know, she is, she's trying to, uh, you know, tear him down. She's making false claims, malicious intent, all those kinds of things. So um, I, I, we're, we're going to see a court battle over it i think for sure but you know what but you know what the danger here is that that she she says that she told others in real time like that she told melania trump at one point and then on a way to a debate it might have been in cleveland i don't remember that she told donald trump that that he had been violent with her you have to imagine she probably has told told others and that's often the deciding factor in this was there a real time reveal of the violence or is does it come up later and there's no predicate for it and we could end up we can end up seeing donald and melania trump basically subpoenaed to testify that, that was i was just gonna go there i was gonna say you could you could you could see some depositions in this case that will you know give some you know some in, insight into what was going on in the white house and yeah i mean i think it could you know it, it could be a risk absolutely if you know if the claims are true and if you know people don't feel like lying under oath or uh you know say she even finds you know an email or something that she sent some kind of documentation she said she doesn't have any so i i tend to think that that's probably there, there probably isn't documentation but it does sort of open up, uh, you know, that can of worms if, you know, the, the president gets called to, uh, uh, you know, subpoena in a Cuyahoga County, well, Cuyahoga County case. Let's face it. Donald Trump has never shown a hesitance to lie in support of some cause. What I'd be interested in is would Melania Trump, if this is true, say it's true. I mean, Donald Trump will say whatever it takes to get Max Miller elected. So he'll say, nope, she never told me. I mean, the, the, the number so- of lies he told his president will be a record for all time. So I don't know that he would be as valuable. I don't even know if he would be worth deposing because you just he has no credibility whatsoever. You know, it's actually kind of interesting because we yeah, we know he lied a lot when he was president, right? But if you go back to his, you know, court cases over the years, and again, this is all pre-presidency, so this is, you know, the the megalomania maybe wasn't quite as high as it is now or was. And uh, if if you look at his like how he sort of acts in depositions, it's wildly different than the way he acts, you know, kind of at the you know public facing. And part of that, you know, is because of potential criminal liability. There's a reason that he didn't want to answer questions under oath when Robert Mueller was investigating, right? Because it opens, well, it does be open up, yeah, it does open up criminal liability. And I yeah. I think he. You know, at least at least in the past deposition, like the the brief parts of depositions that I've seen, I think it he's probably aware of that. So, um, yeah, I, th- I I I do wonder if you know there there 
come some other uh, sort of solution to it that, uh, you know, I, I don't know if the case is going to, you know, if, they're, if they'll drop the suit or anything like that. But if, if you know, subpoenas start flying, I, I wonder what road this goes down. Yeah, we'll have to see. Um, it, and the, the, this is all based on an op-ed that she wrote in the Washington Post yesterday saying that she told the White House officials like the president and the president's wife you can read it on the Washington Post. It's this week in the CLE. Listeners to this podcast know it involves full-throated discussion and analysis of a day's news and that it publishes mid-morning each weekday. But did you know we also publish a much more concise podcast each weekday with a fast rundown of the top five stories of the day? It's called The Wake Up, and you can find it wherever you listen to podcasts. It's five to seven minutes long, and it publishes before dawn each weekday. Are the people who ran the defunct Internet Charter School known as ECOT, which lied about enrollment figures to scam Ohioans out of millions of dollars, out of options in their battle not to repay the state $60 million? Lisa Garvin, this was a huge story a few years back. It's lasted forever, but are they done? Do they have to finally pay up? They've got to cough up the dough. Uh, the Ohio Supreme Court ruled that ECOT has to return that $60 million in overpayments. It was not a unanimous decision, though. It was a 4-3 split. Um, and the argument was over the word final. So basically, the uh, the ruling opinion here is that final means final. But the three dissenters, Sharon Kennedy, Michael Donnelly, Medley, Medley, Melody Stewart, said that final doesn't mean final. It still it just means the party can appeal in another you know in another venue. So I, I'm just I'm just glad that this has come to an end because. Max William Lager, who was the founder of ECOT, has been fighting this for years. I mean, ECOT shut down in 2018, and there was a huge scandal. I mean, people were there was story after story about this because they were basing their, you know, they were basing fees on enrollment, not student engagement. And it was found during many investigations by Cleveland.com and the Plain Dealer is that that students weren't even logging on, but they were still being counted as being enrolled. So I'm just glad that this thing is finally at an end. And I'm kind of surprised that it was a 4-3 decision. Um, I would think it would have been close to unanimous. Interesting fact, though, that uh, William Lager gave over $2 million to Ohio GOP groups and, and politicians, including Justice Pat DeWine, who was actually on the, the right side of this decision. So very interesting. But yeah, hopefully the ECOT saga is finally over. Yeah, this was the definition of scandal before the House Bill 6 thing. Now it just seems like a little episode in the history of <laughs> Ohio corruption. And this was one where they got away with it for years and they had paid off a whole lot of people to look the other way. They fought and fought and fought. And meanwhile, uh, children suffered because they weren't getting the education the state was paying for. I'm glad the Education Department gets the $60 million back. These people were bad news. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What is the argument that attorneys for Christopher Whitaker, who kidnapped, raped, tortured, and murdered 14-year-old Aliana DeFries, should not be put to death, as was ordered at his trial? Laura Johnston, this, this is, ranks way up there in the history of the most gruesome deaths of a child I've ever heard about. If you are going to have a death penalty, this guy's like the poster child for it. Um, so why are they arguing he should not be put to death? Well, because he's 
the attorney said he admitted he was responsible for murdering Aliana and he didn't contest his guilt at trial. So they believe that that should have been a mitigating factor for the jury to have considered early on in the trial. But the jury didn't know about that admission until later. There was actually 21 legal issues that he argued to the Supreme Ohio Supreme Court on Tuesday. And this was the automatic appeal to which Whitaker is entitled because he's on death row. And he said that his acceptance of responsibility showed his character and that character is a factor in the consideration in the penalty phase. But you're right. This is a really heinous case. And just how, how do you argue yeah. that he has character? I mean, right. it, what he did to this poor child and, you know, this was a, a child with some disability. She was between transferring between buses when he grabbed her and dragged her into this abandoned house. Her last hours were I, they're, they're almost impossible to imagine. It was so bad what this guy did. So to stand up and say, well, well, he took responsibility for it. So what? I mean, how does that mitigate torturing and raping a child? Well, I, I mean, I personally don't think it does, but um, the prosecutor's office never offered Whitaker a plea deal to even say, you know, plead guilty and then have the trial go away because the Aliana's family was wholly adamant and in support of the death penalty on this case, which, you know, obviously is taken into consideration. And so the assistant prosecutor who argued this said it's the only appropriate sentence here. And she also said he might have accepted responsibility, but he also made a lot of denials. And that mitigates the weight that the other the court otherwise could have given to the acceptance of responsibility. But I mean, you also wonder they're having this hearing. It's about death row. We haven't put someone to death in Ohio in how many years. So I don't know if it's going to be. You never know what's going to happen in the future. Well, what's sad, too, is uh, city Cleveland City Councilman Judge Jones stood up a week ago on the council floor and noted that in the previous week, Aliana's mom had died. Yeah. So she's she's dead, but this guy continues to live, and people are arguing that he has strong character because he admitted it. It's kind of a shock. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. A lot of people have issued endorsements in the Cleveland mayor's race of late. Who are they? What are they saying? And what else is happening in the battle between Justin Bibb and Kevin Kelly? Seth Richardson, we had some major ones in the past week. What were they? Yeah, some pretty big ones, uh, you know, following, you know, the, the Bashir Jones and Zach Reed endorsements that happened, uh, you know, the following day, a, a group of, you know, really influential ministers came out in, in favor of Justin Bibb, the likes of, you know, Otis Moss Jr. and Marvin McMickle and Tony Minor, uh, those folks. And uh, it was it was really, I think, a, a pretty, pretty big get for, you know, Justin Bibb. Um, those the, like the, the ministers are incredibly influential especially in local politics and that was actually one of the more you know i i watched it uh, online I, I didn't get to go there myself but even just watching it 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 was like a good rally um how many were an, uh, i believe there were more than 30 um i'm not sure the exact number I, it was around 34 35 and it was you know when, when i say it was a good rally i mean it like like people looked excited there, right? And uh, you know that the, like very powerful kind of messages coming from the ministers who basically said, you know, this this young man is the uh, the the hope for change. And I, I do think that'll that'll resonate quite a bit with voters um, just because of how influential you know the ministers can be. Well, and then then they take that message back to their congregations yes. individually. So it's not just. They stood on the steps of a historic church. This is a message they continue to deliver to people who do vote. 
Yes, absolutely. You, you, if you take a look back at the uh, 11th Congressional District race, right, what did you have? You had Chantel Brown, who really got a lot of minister support. And when you saw how she was campaigning, right, she was doing a lot of campaigning in churches. And that matters because those people vote. People like the people who go to church on Sundays, they they go and vote. They are high propensity voters. So if those messages filter back to the churches, which I assume they will, uh, you know, that 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 can play a big role in, uh, you know, really getting some of the votes. Uh, and then the, there was another big one this week. What was it? Yeah. The other the other big endorsement was uh, Sherrod Brown also coming out for Justin Bibb, which I think is interesting for a number of reasons. Right. Um, you know, Sherrod doesn't typically get too involved in. Democrat versus Democrat races. I know this is technically not a primary; it's a general election. Uh, but you, you know, a lot of the times he he doesn't necessarily want to wade into that stuff just because uh, you know, probably because you're always kind of looking to build the bench. So why kind of go against you know either person from your party who could win? But um, it, it was a little telling to me for a couple of reasons. And and you know, the other thing is that Sherrod is kind of the de facto head of the. Democratic Party here, right? He's the most popular Democrat in the state by a wide margin. He's a Cleveland voter, so he actually votes in this race. And, uh, you know, a lot of Democrats listen to a lot of people in general just listen to him, right? He actually in Cuyahoga County in 2018, he got, uh, you know, his race got more votes than uh, the governor's race, which is I thought was very interesting. Um, So I I, I do think that is going to play a factor. But there's also some intrigue as far as 2024 in this, right, when Sherrod is going to be running for re-election because Kevin Kelly is the vice chair of the party, of the uh, county party right now. And, you know, he he might, he probably won't be the vice chair of the party or even the chair of the party. And, you know, come 2024, I just don't imagine he would necessarily want to keep doing that, I, you know, either if he wins or loses, right? But that doesn't mean that Kevin Kelly's supporters and kind of that, you know, sort of machine isn't going to be there. And this, you know, really struck me as a, um, you know, a sort of uh, broadside to some of that power structure, because we know that Democrats statewide have seen the uh, Cuyahoga County Republican Party as a liability to uh, their their viability really statewide, just because they've been unable to, you know, turn out Cuyahoga County and Democrats have uh, really suffered electorally because of it. So I do think there's there's some of that underlying yeah. narrative in it. And I think the other thing to consider is that, you know, there's no bench in Ohio right now for Democrats. It, it is it is right. And Justin Bibb, if he if he became mayor, would be part of the bench. We should point out, too, that the SEIU, which really doesn't like Kevin Kelly because he's interfered with some of their initiatives, is a big supporter of Sherrod Brown. I mean, the SEIU has really doesn't want to see Kevin Kelly as mayor. They've they've lost their battles with him, but they've they've tangled with him quite a bit. It's interesting that you keep seeing the positive movement for the Justin Bibb campaign. You talk about the ministers, you talk about Sherrod Brown. He's not making missteps. And we've talked Orion this this week about how Kevin Kelly is showing almost a remarkable level of ineptitude in the decisions he's making when the city council ha- went around him to start talking about how to spend the stimulus money because they felt like there was no transparency and he wasn't showing leadership. Then when they had that hearing, instead of embracing it and leading it, he spent 40 minutes basically haranguing them to point out that he had done leadership and then walked out. I mean, it's just it seems like these two campaigns are going in opposite directions and it's harder and harder to see 
how Kelly has any path here to a victory. It's it's certainly harder with the you know the ministers coming out and Sherrod coming out. I would say so because those are two really really influential voices. And you know what? Let's go back to even Zach Reed endorsing uh, Justin Bibb. You know you know Zachary doesn't necessarily carry the biggest constituency or anything like that but you know one thing that I have been seeing is that he's actually been out there you know door knocking and canvassing for Justin Bibb and you know that that does count for something you know an endorsement it only goes as far as whoever endorses you is willing to put the work in and yeah you know it does just seem like a lot of positive momentum going in Justin's well, favor and you weren't on the podcast last week when we talked about it, but when Bashir Jones endorsed Kevin Kelly, you know, Kevin Kelly was very grateful. It was for him a big endorsement, but there was blowback on that because of how uh, loud his voice had been in criticizing Kevin Kelly in the primary than to turn around and say, he's been good for my district. There were a lot of people raising questions about that. Yeah, it was really sort of bizarre, right? The, the whole primary we heard, you know, Bashir basically say, you know, I, I did this. I brought this, you know, development to, you know, my ward and, you know, attacked Kevin Kelly multiple times and actually said some complimentary things about Bib during the primary. Now, you know, he he, he attacked, um, you know, Bib as well, Justin as well. But it, it was I, I was surprised that uh, he would go that route. I, I think that. You know, I, I could speculate here. I think that probably is a, a little bit of the um, uh, kind of the, the Marsha Fudge circle sort of putting some pressure on, right? Because we know a lot of her circle, you know, helped and uh, ran Bashir's campaign. But yeah, that, that one struck me as odd just because we know he's been critical of Kelly and not even just in the primary itself. He's been critical of him essentially throughout his whole time on council. So it was, and again, it, it's an endorsement. And so Kelly can say, oh, I'm grateful for it. But, but it's just these two, I'd never expected to see Kevin Kelly's campaign be this foundering. And, and, you know, we talked about it yesterday when you weren't on, it, it, it gives you a glimpse of what it might be if he's mayor. I mean, if, if he's in, in this inept in running the campaign, what would it be like if he's mayor? Got to wrap it up. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. I love, a, I love an episode where we only get to six questions because it means we have great meat to tear into. So thank you, Seth. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, Lisa. Thanks to everybody who listens to this podcast. We'll be back on Thursday. Thursday.